the value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Hello, my name is Graham Baker and I am a portfolio manager that is part of our sustainable equity team here at 91. I really focus on sustainable decarbonisation and the investment opportunity. Now, we are lucky enough to be joined by Arita Segal, who's one of the excellent analysts on our team. She grew up in Delhi, but also was fortunate enough to have lived and worked across three different continents of the world. We're also joined by Nick Robbins. He is a professor in practice at the London School of Economics, focusing on sustainable finance. He's also worked in fund management and climate investment research, but also more recently is concentrating on financing the net zero transition in a fair and equitable way. So we're here today to talk about India's sustainable future. As we all know, India offers a really exciting decarbonisation growth opportunity, but it is also fast becoming the most populous country in the world. So with that comes risks, but also opportunities. And we're here today to talk about some of the investment risks and opportunities associated with India. We're here to talk about a fair and just transition and how India will have an impact on the world's transition to a net zero future. But before we get into some of that detail, I'd like to hear a little bit more from our guests about their backgrounds. So maybe if we start with Arita. Sure. Thanks, Graham, for that kind introduction. Um, I actually was very fortunate to have grown up in India at a time when um, it was undergoing transformation on multiple fronts. Uh, economically, as India was liberalizing, socially, as more women were entering business and politics, and politically, you know, despite being a somewhat noisy, chaotic democracy. Um, as, as you said, I've lived across three continents. I've worn multiple hats. So quickly taking you through that journey, I started my career as a social entrepreneur, challenging conventional norms. Uh, I embarked on my professional journey as a credit analyst, so didn't really grow up drinking the equity analyst Kool-Aid, uh, appraising private and public companies in India and helping mobilize millions of dollars of capital for their growth. I then moved to United States to pursue my MBA at MIT, uh, where I led the investment club for the university. Um, I then began my journey as an equity analyst at Rockefeller in New York, and I continued to build that investment track record at HSBC Global Asset Management in their flagship emerging market strategy. Um, and then in 2020, you know, there was an epiphany. I wanted to do something where I could combine returns with impact. And hence, I joined 91 Sustainable Equity Capability. And, uh, and we're solving within the team one of the most pressing issues of our time, climate change. So I'm really excited to be finding ideas in the space. Great. Great to have you here, Arita. And Nick? 
Well, great. No, lovely to be here with you, Narita Graham. Um, so I've been working on sustainability and climate change for 30 years, unfortunately, so <laughs> quite, a lo- <laughs> quite a long time. I've worked in the policy field, so I've worked at the European Commission, uh, I've worked at the UN, but most of my time has been spent in financial markets. So seven years at Henderson Global Investors running their sustainability funds. Uh, and we did the first carbon footprint of a, of a fund back in 2005 and developed, I suppose, a multi-thematic sustainability fund, then moved to HSBC um, and set up a Thing called the Climate Change Center of Excellence. Um, and that was when I really first engaged professionally um, uh, in India. I had a big research team uh, in Bangalore. And we were doing the first research, sort of 2007, 8, 9, into clean tech opportunities, some of the risks, particularly about water scarcity and so on uh, in, in India. Um, and, and then I moved uh, out of the financial sector into sort of financial policy at the UN. Uh, in 2014, 2015, and was really the time thinking, well, sustainability is not just an issue for an asset or a fund or an institution, but what does it mean for the financial system? What should central banks be doing? What should, how should we be thinking about that? Um, and then I came to the LSE. So I, as you said, I'm a professor in practice, which means I'm not an academic. Um, but we are very focused, as, as you were saying, Arita, on, on, on impact. So working with financial institutions, really to, to look at some of the sort of tough, tough issues. And one of those is, um, is, is just transition. And um, by background, I'm an economic historian. So I've published a book on the British East India Company called The uh, Corporation That Changed the World. So uh, looking back at uh, responsible or irresponsible practice a few centuries ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, a, a really interesting CV. So great to have you both here. So let, let's get on to the, the main topic. And as I said, we're here to talk about India's sustainable future. Now, as we know, when we look across global cumulative carbon emissions since pre-industrialization times, we've seen the Western world has contributed the majority of that. We also see that 80% of all financial assets sit within developed countries. Now, if we are to move towards a more sustainable global economy and ecosystem, we know that needs to reverse completely and we need to see the majority of capital and financing going towards emerging markets. We also know when we look forward in time that the greatest percentage of future potential carbon emissions are going to come from the emerging markets. So funding the decarbonisation pathways in those areas is extremely important. And of course, India is key to that. So maybe let's start with you, Nick. I know you've done a lot of work on the just transition and on financing the just transition. Have you got anything to add specifically around India and what you're seeing and thinking there? Well, this is a great time to be having this conversation, Graham, because uh, India is the chair of the G20 this year and has very much put sustainability at the heart across all the themes of whether it's finance or environment or, or, or climate. And I think this has been a real trigger for the Indian financial system to really take uh, greening the financial system and climate change very seriously. So you've had the first green sovereign bond come out. I know it's sort of debt, debt asset class, but that's a signal to the market. Uh, you've, you've seen the Reserve Bank of India, the central bank, also issuing a whole series of guidelines about scenarios and prudential risk. Uh, SEBI, the securities regulator, has just upgraded its whole series of policies around blue and green bonds. There's a whole raft of new reporting requirements really tailored to the Indian context coming through. So in terms of the sort of the, the architecture, I think this is a real uh, wake-up time. And I think 
very clear signals from the Indian government that they really want to attract private capital for the net zero transition. That this this is very favourable. Um, whether that's through equity markets, there's an offshore international financial centre as well, which is being set up, which potentially has some uh, new 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 opportunities. So a big moment of, of, of and, and I think the issues then of finding these mechanisms as you say to tap the pools of capital in what you could call the global north and to make sure that they flow on a very routine normal basis into let's say the the, the green infrastructure opportunity in India that's that's the challenge of the moment yeah okay so it sounds like 2023 is a big year for India and of course for the world. Now, maybe Arata, if we turn to you, you've just got back from a long research trip in India, looking at many different companies, sectors and themes. You've already touched on that you grew up in Delhi. So you've got a very differentiated perspective on India. And we'd like to hear, you know, post that trip, what sort of ideas and opportunities are coming through and what you're thinking about India decarbonization and the current state of play there. Sure. Thanks, Graham. It was indeed very exciting to actually go back to India and, if I may say, meet the companies of the future. Um, So I was literally on the road and in the air traversing 7,000 kilometers across the length and the breadth of the country. And one thing that really stood out to me, as Nick said, um, was this palpable sense uh, and, and change in consumer attitudes, corporate attitudes, policy-making environment, which is embracing slowly but steadily decarbonization. To give you a perspective, uh, when I landed at the Delhi International Airport, I was welcomed by these huge banners, you know, reminding me of India's role in the decade of action, you know, the huge solar and the hydrogen potential that the country has to offer. I mean, there is this sense of uh, imperative on sustainable consumption. You know, you walk into a hotel and you're served constant reminders on energy efficiency and water conservation. Then it was very much possible. I don't know, Nick, if you tried that, but I could actually get a green taxi in Delhi through an app a thing that wasn't possible up until 2021. And this is thanks to the zeitgeist of young entrepreneurs, you know, who are reimagining mobility despite the somewhat lagging EV infrastructure. So if we put it all together and the corporates, not to forget the corporates, I mean, they get the relative economics of renewables versus the dirty coal. So to put it all together, you know, this was a stark contrast to what, if I may say, my lived experiences when I was growing up in Delhi. Um, To give you an anecdote, I mean, I remember growing up, you know, I would have to make sure to complete all my homework before the sun set because of the fear of blackouts and power cuts. Uh, I've spent very many nights sleeping on the terrace of my house, gazing at the starry skies uh, to beat the warm summer nights. Um, because the clunky, noisy diesel fill generator that we had as backup power was not good enough for a family of four. So certainly when I compare and contrast what I saw this time on my trip versus my own lived experiences, there's been massive progress and I'm excited about the future. Yeah, and that progress sounds huge and sounds really exciting. And you know, as part of that, we're seeing electricity grow significantly. When we look at electricity growth, it's looking at about 5 to 10% per annum continuously. And yeah, as you touched on, India has a very coal-heavy grid. So 
the task is actually huge for India to decarbonize. And Nick, do you have any thoughts around how India can do that? No, it's a big, big issue. I mean, by historical contrast, I mean, the UK actually peaked carbon emissions in 1973 with the ore shock. uh, And then it sort of started moving down, particularly in the 1990s with climate policy. So people are saying maybe 2040 for peaking emissions. Uh, The government's goal is 2070 for net zero. So that's 30 years. So the UK has quite a gentle 70 year process. It's essentially sort of peak to zero in one or so generation. So this is a big, a, a, a big heave. And particularly regionally in India, you've got a very big distinction between the largely the, the, the coal regions and mining regions in Bihar and Jharkhand and so on and then the industrial manufacturing based in Gujarat and Maharashtra so and that's where a lot of the opportunities are in terms of solar and renewables and so on so so it's it's it's, it's not just a how do you think about the huge issue with millions of people potentially tens of millions of people involved directly or indirectly in the phase down ultimate phase out of of coal but that huge regional issue about where the opportunities are and as we know from the just transition, the new opportunities are big and bigger than the downside, but they're not necessarily in the same place or for the same uh, same same people. Um, so, so I think there is a, a sort of a recognition that this is a big task. I think the opportunities, as you were saying, I think a lot of interest clearly on the renewable potential in India. The cost is is so attractive. So I think clearly there is still new coal capacity coming on. Whether India needs to build any new coal-fired power stations, I think is a very moot question. I think that there's actually now the cost advantage of renewables is so great that that is probably an unlikely. So I think potentially on the on the coal supply, which potentially more is from an energy and energy security issue. Um, but I see renewables winning out. And again, uh, energy security points to that as well. Yeah, and and you think that can happen in a just and fair way? Well, that's the issue. That's the issue, and that's a, that's a big issue um, in the in the in the in the global context. There has been a process now developed with countries like South Africa, which obviously nice no one knows very well, yep. uh, which really I think was a leader. It was the first country to put just transition in its climate plan, and two years ago, uh, South Africa announced its sort of just energy transition partnership and investment plan, a hundred billion dollars. India, I think, is coming uh, around to, to that. I think the key is it very much needs obviously to be driven by the Indian government it can't be seen uh, with uh, donor countries and so that that time is long gone thank god Um, but I think uh, there are signs of just transition that came out in the government's climate plan the end of last year Um, but it's a big enterprise so I think sort of steadily uh, and so on and really aiming on the 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 attraction, the magnetism of the opportunity um, uh, as, as, as the sort of, I think, the main focus. Yeah, okay, interesting. And Arita, keeping on that thread, you know, post your trip and post all of the research you've been doing recently into the region and companies involved in decarbonisation in India, what have you been seeing from a policy and a regulation perspective? Is there anything tangible that makes you think India can do this, they can decarbonise? As we know, India wants to go net zero by 2070. But let's just say we've got very scanty details of how India gets there. But what we do know is that in the interim, by 2030, India plans to have about 500 gigawatts of non-fossil capacity. Now, what that implies really is that India is going to be adding 40 gigawatts of renewables every year up until 2030. Now, this is a huge number. It's a Herculean task. 
especially when there is an intentional reorganization of supply chains as well happening at the same time. But I did see credible evidence of institutional learning that has taken place in the space. To give you a perspective, let's take up land. You know, land has always been a very contentious topic in India. Uh, rightfully so, because, you know, the country has about 18% of world's population on barely 2% of world's landmass. Uh, but over the years, the bilateral negotiation on acquiring land has improved. Furthermore, the government has stepped in to create dedicated solar parks and infrastructure parks, which make land readily available and therefore improves project economics. Then there are various other slew of measures also that can be seen. For instance, um, renewables today enjoy a must-run status. Renewable purchase obligations across states have been increasing over time. Receivables, you know, which has been an Achilles heel in the sector, you know, is being addressed slowly and steadily. There's long-term patient capital that is coming into the country that is probably partly easing the cost of capital conundrum. Then there are sort of laggard sectors, if I may say, like onshore wind, you know, which haven't done as well as solar in India. You know, government is trying to revitalize those spaces. Then green hydrogen. Uh, I think earlier this year, um, India announced their ambition to have at least 5 million tons of capacity uh, by 2030. Now, that is not only seen as a solution, a possible solution for climate change mitigation, but also probably a way to reduce the subsidies that go into the fertilizer industry. And then last but not the least, the changing face of mobility. Uh, India is home to one of the largest two-wheeler markets on the planet. Uh, even though, you know, a two-wheeler might look unassuming, but it can cause a lot of emissions, especially if it's stuck in a traffic jam in Delhi and Mumbai. Uh, but certainly, thanks to regulations and the policy incentives, etc., and subsidies to the space, today an electric two-wheeler is 20 to 40 percent cheaper than a comparable ICE counterpart. And let's not forget a lot of production link incentives uh, that are being given to uh, promote advanced cell manufacturing R&D to create the next battery ecosystem. So certainly we're seeing a lot of evidence of action on the ground. What we need to see now is companies get to a certain scale such that their economics becomes attractive. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've got this really exciting structural growth opportunity, but also the economics and the costs make sense when we're looking at many of these different technologies, whether it's renewables or electric vehicles, etc., which I think makes this really exciting. And maybe just to probe a little bit further from the research you've been doing and trying to get into the stock-specific detail, have you got any really exciting ideas at this moment in time? Sure. Uh, I really like Power Grid of India. And as we've discussed um, India's energy mix needs to undergo a monumental change, right? If it needs to kind of marry the demands on energy with sustainability. And a key pre prerequisite for that to happen is investment in grids, um, you know, at the very least concurrently and at best proactively. So Power Grid as a principal transmission company in India that owns today 85% of the installed capacity plays a key role in making that happen. So I believe that Power Grid has in front of it various structural growth opportunities, capex opportunities to lay down those transmission lines carrying those green electrons, build out those substations and strengthen the grid. 
And importantly, the structural growth comes with durable source of competitive advantages in terms of scale, experience, as well as access to low cost of capital, thanks to Government of India backing. And I think to put it in context, what makes it attractive as an investment is also the stable, healthy return profile that the company offers. But Graham, if I may add here, not just with Power Grid, I think I won't be amiss to say that India overall is kind of an SDG lab in its own right, right? There are so many, as Nick mentioned, there are so many problems to solve and private capital is very much needed to solve those very many issues. I think what is important as equity markets in India deepen and broaden is probably two things at the very least. One, uh, Indian corporates need to up their game on transparency and disclosures when it comes to sustainability. And secondly, they continue to have this relentless focus on governance, which is extremely important to attract capital. Yeah, no. And within our team, as you no, Arita, we really try to focus on what we call our capitals framework, where we look at natural capital, human capital and social capital, try to understand how positive and negative externalities within those categories can impact the long term intrinsic value of a business. But there are other risks. And I don't know, maybe Nick, you have a, a comment around some of the risks, whether it's physical risk that we mm-hmm. see within India. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But maybe also just build on on, on Arita's point. I mean, I, I think what is so interesting when we talked about the just transition is that, in a sense, it's a way of bringing together different um, SDGs. So we've got the SDG on clean energy and climate, and SDGs on decent work, gender, and education. That's what the just transition is. It's bringing these things together, bringing these silos in investment of the E and the S and 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 and, and the G. Um, and I think uh, for for India, what is so interesting is if you look at sort of two snapshots of its sort of carbon positioning. In terms of the G20, actually, it's best positioned in the G20 because it has such low per capita emissions. Admittedly, they're rising, and they're not going to they're not going to rise above the OECD. But then, if you look at the the risk side, the climate risk side, it's a big red triangle of risk um, because of its its position, because of its 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 uh, water scarcity, actually relatively small land area with large uh, large population. So we have these two issues actually on the emission side, relatively good, lots of potential for new renewables. On the risk side, particularly for an agricultural population, um, which obviously is still a large part of the, the the economy, there is there is an issue of risk. So I think that is going to be something where I think for for investors really looking at sort of the upside opportunities, thinking about questions about the transition for affected coal communities and so on, so we don't have sort of stranded workers, stranded communities, but making sure that risk point is actually managed very clearly in, in terms of risk of extreme events, uh, access access to water, um, and the, in a sense, social protection that that, inv- that that requires where you have still large parts of the population which don't have access to regular electricity and therefore uh, air conditioning so yeah yeah which is r- very important and arita maybe just back to power grid you've also spent a lot of time trying to look at the capital's framework and how power grid sits within that looking at risks and opportunities anything you'd like to specifically add there sure i mean one thing i'd like to mention that uh, it's refreshingly different as to how we look at sustainability through the capital lenses in a world where there is proliferation of ESG scores. So certainly taking power grid through that lens on the natural capital side, um, you know, as we've discussed, they play a critical role in integrating renewables. But 
also what caught my attention is their intentional approach when it comes to minimizing land footprint of their development such that they can minimize vegetation loss they can minimize biodiversity loss and minimize social risks associated with it but as nick mentioned and grim as you point rightly pointed out it sits in a geography that is prone to a lot of weather risks so it is incredibly important for pargrid to weatherize their assets invest in digital and financial instruments that protect value i think on the so- social capital front uh they play a huge uh role um especially in terms of rural electrification i genuinely believe that access to clean affordable reliable energy is the first step towards poverty reduction so they've played a tremendous role in connecting the rural part of india um also they've been very intentional about their approach in terms of how to engage with communities and stakeholder management which is very critical for such large scale infrastructure projects and last but not the least on human capital front i mean of course it operates in a geography that has a very unique labor market dynamics uh india's churning out millions and millions of skilled graduates every year so this genuinely a good jobs problem in the country and i think pargrid in its own little way is able to provide those good quality jobs that help people realize their human potential but i think one thing that is still aspirational today with pargrid as an investment is that they can do a much better job with gender diversity i mean i noticed that most of the technical roles are heavily skewed uh towards men so it is a definitely a promising investment opportunity but there's more work to be done yeah very interesting and nick so y- you've spent a significant amount of time working on and thinking about mobilizing investment for a just transition for india moving towards a net zero scenario and doing it in a fair and just way we know that 2/3 of the world's population sits within emerging markets but only 1/5 of the clean energy investment has gone towards emerging markets now part of the reason might be to do with the cost of capital Uh, capital is expensive there are risks involved but also the availability of capital um needs to improve so taking that into account and all the work you've done how do you think india can work towards improving that well it's a it's a it's a really strategic question for the world in fact not just not just for 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 india so in a, a recent report we did at the lsc with colleagues in uh, in, in india sranjali tandon from nipfp and prasad modak from emc called just finance india we were sort of the starting point actually was some analytics looking at actually what is the scale of the investment requirement for india and cew a great think tank in delhi said that really from 2020 to 2070 india needs about so 10 trillion of 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 investment for net zero which in the big schemes things is is a big number but actually over that period of time 50 years that's 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 doable but actually there's an investment gap of 3.5 so the conventional sources because of the low capital base in in india you need 3.5 and and nearly half of that's got to come from overseas. So that's a big issue that the the internal capital base of India is not going to be sufficient. So foreign uh, investments going to be uh, going to be required. I think there are some one as I say India has a very uh, encouraging approach to foreign private investment um both through the, the sort of established stock exchanges in, in Mumbai this new IFSC in Gujarat uh, as a sort of offshore uh, center and I think they're really trying to position itself as a as a sustainable um finance center. There are also some 
institutional developments? Because I think one of the issues clearly with uh, investing in so-called emerging markets is a sense of sort of political risk in particular, you know, currency risk and, and so on. And it does the sort of the government itself have skin in the game. Uh, and there's one institution that we've been uh, working with a bit uh, called the National Infrastructure Investment um, Fund. And that's a sort of sense, uh, an Indian government sovereign fund. It also attracts um, at, for commercial investments, so like in renewables, um, uh, money from DFIs, but also from Western pension funds. So it's a way of saying, look, we as India want to build out this infrastructure. We want to attract your uh, foreign investment, but we're going to do it in a structure where actually we have we have an investment. And so if it goes sour, we we take the pain as well as you. And I think that's quite an attractive way um, for, um, for, for investors to actually do this sort of investment. Um, and one of the platforms uh, they invested in uh, was called IANA uh, Renewables. Uh, and it was an interesting model because there was a deliberate p- part, of, a part of the setup of this renewables platform um, to actually invest in women as solar engineers, to, to pick on the point you, you were talking about, the gender balance. Because I think many of the growth areas in the transition like energy, are ones where women are structurally underrepresented. So if, if, we're, if that is going to be uh, fair, then the sort of gender balance is going to be a big point. Um, so I think that's one thing, sort of looking at the institutional structures. And another is an idea I've put out is really a lot of the, finan- the sort of sustainable finance debate has really get to, got to get to the, the right level of seriousness. It's got to le- get a level that prime ministers like Prime Minister take it seriously. So I propose that UK and India sign a sustainable finance deal for now till 2050 or 2070, um, which is essentially about UK working with India to mobilize uh, a million pounds over that period. Again, might seem a lot, but how would that make sure that actually routinely uh, capital from your investors, whether they're pension funds or individual investors, whatever, could routinely go, safely go, so you could get the risk return you need um, over time. What needs to happen in financial regulation here in London? What needs to happen in financial regulation in Mumbai? What are the incentives? What are the wrappers? And so on. But take it very seriously uh, and raise it up a notch so that it's at the sort of PM level that this is a big deal that needs to be done. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. So, Maybe to wrap up, let's try and finish on a positive. And I'm going to ask both of you, what excites you the most about India and the investment opportunity? So maybe if we start with Arita. Sure. Um, Probably my favorite question, Graham. Um, So I think India, it's safe to say that India is a land of contrasts. You know, you see the best and the brightest alongside the most needy and the poorest. But what excites me the most is that despite all odds, despite all the obvious encumbrances, uh, you know, Indian corporates have demonstrated staying power. They've demonstrated resilience over time. And in fact, there is a colloquial Hindi term called jugar, you know, which is often used in India, uh, which loosely translates to, um, you know, this relentless drive to seek solutions in the face of adversity, you know, with ingenuity, with improvisation. So if you marry that ethos that, you know, generally Indian an average Indian would have on the road or Indian corporates with the long duration of growth opportunities that are afforded by rising incomes and rising aspirations, you know, it makes a case for a huge, very attractive investable opportunity. And I genuinely believe that now India has this great opportunity 
to write their own script for a sustainable future, which is going to be low carbon, you know, when it builds the homes of tomorrow and the factories of the future. Interesting. And Nick? Well, I want to take another Hindi word beginning with J, Josh, which is the India word for uh, vigor or power or something. And that sense of, of dynamism in a, de- in a developing country is very, very striking. And that sense of being able to see the transition as an opportunity for, for wealth generation and, and building of, 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 of jobs and, and, and so on. Uh, and I suppose my thing I've been looking at in the last 15 years is how we really tap the pool of what are called NRIs, non-resident Indians. So I've always been thinking, how do we develop investment products, SRIs, sustainable responsible investment uh, for NRIs, so SRI for NRIs. Uh, different asset classes, I think small cap would be very interesting in India, lots of opportunities there, large cap, small cap, different asset classes. Um, and, and I think that's a real, a real opportunity for sort of getting that uh, wealth from the NRI community who really want to not only give back, but invest back into the country. And I think we can do that. Yeah, I think that sounds like a great idea. Well, I think we're out of time. So, you know, we've had a really interesting discussion talking about the exciting potential within India regarding sustainable decarbonisation and thinking about the just transition. So with that, I'd like to thank Arita and Nick for joining us. Um, It's been a great conversation and hopefully we'll speak again. Thank you. Thanks Thanks so much. This podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.